Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And to tell you something, people, this is my uh, first first uh, Thanksgiving. It's going to be coming up back east for like five years. No, for my life. I, I don't think I've been back since Thanksgiving. But it's weird because every year we would have people over to our place in Burbank. And we'd have a big dinner. And, of course, you know, as you get older, your friends bring food and booze and booze and lots of booze. And this year it's going to be different because we're actually going to like this nice highfalutin place called the Union League in Philly. And it bothers me because I have to wear, I have to wear a uh, suit. And I don't mind wearing suits, but not when I eat a lot. And the good thing is, though, they have a huge buffet and they have a lot of seafood. And I want to tell you something. I don't want to sound un-American, but I think turkey sort of sucks. Okay? The dark meat is okay, but the white meat's dry. And people say, put gravy on it. I go, well, if you put gravy on it, it why? It should taste good without gravy. So I think this is going to be my first turkeyless Thanksgiving, but I will eat stuffing. But the only problem that bothers me is these these nice places put all that crap, like walnuts and, and raisins and cranberries in their stuffing. I just want regular stuffing. Anyway, I'll tell you about it, people. You know me, I talk about nothing. Anyway, we have a great show. Uh, my guest today, she's uh, she was my first guest ever ever on Cooper Talk. It must have been six and a half or seven years ago. And I was hosting a comedy show called Cooper's Angels and she was nice enough to come on. And then she was on a few years ago. And I gotta tell you, you know, I know her, I don't know her that great, but I'm really proud of this woman because she really, she just came out with a book. And you know, in LA, everyone's a writer. You know, people say, oh, I got a blog, they're a writer. Me, I wrote a cookbook. But to be honest, I self-published it. So technically, I'm not a writer. This woman is a writer. I mean, she's the, the real thing published. I saw her in Barnes and Noble. Her book is great. It's called My Fair Junkie, a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean. My guest is Amy Dresner. How you doing, Amy? Hi, Steve. I'm great. It's great to be here again. <laughs> I know. It's so funny, you know. So I got to ask you about the book. When, well, we're going to talk about the book, but when you first, when you finally got it done, when it was in your hands, not your drafts, not your edit, when you had that one copy that you know you're going holy crap what was your what was your feeling what did it feel like for you I cried it was really surreal I can't describe I mean I can't describe it it's so surreal to and it was you know it was like this thing that's been inside you forever and now it's like outside you and going out into the world I mean I don't have children but it must be what it's like to have children it's it was it was very bizarre it was very surreal. I mean, I've been wanting to write a book for 20 years, and I have, you know, many half, you know, uh, baked novels on my on my computer. But uh, to actually have it out there, and it's like it, it, it's it was incredible. I was just like, wow, I did it, you know. Now, now, how was it, you know, bearing your soul? I mean, I know you've written for a lot of, uh, you know, online publications and stuff like that, and different publications, and I know. You know, you talked about your addictions and stuff on stage, but what is it like when you actually sit down and you're looking at the computer or pen? I don't, you don't know what your process is, but what is it like when you actually have to sit there and bare your soul? Is it is it scary? And when you're talking about addiction, do you ever sit there and think, man, if I had a drink right now or if I did this, it would help me out? Well, you know, I my I had been writing for thefix.com for five years. I'd been like a columnist for them, and my pieces were very personal and vulnerable and confessional. So I was used to that. But that's you know, there were parts that I really hesitated where I was like, I don't want to write about this. Like I'm embarrassed. Like this is humiliating. We do a lot of stuff in addiction that we're not proud of, and I just felt like. 
I could feel myself holding back, and that's when I, I made myself push. I, because I think that, you know, I want to say the things that everyone's thinking that no one dares say. And it's like, I think that those dark secrets is like where people really identify and feel less alone and less ashamed and that kind of stuff. And it's like, I think if you're writing, if you're trying to write a memoir and, and you're trying to look good, you're just not being honest enough, especially an addiction memoir. Come on. Right. So I just forced myself to be as honest as possible and just like whatever was going to happen was going to happen. And the response has been really, really good. I mean, I don't, I feel a weird freedom. Like it's all out there. What's someone going to say? Like, oh, you da da da. It's like, yeah, I wrote about it. I mean, there's, I feel weirdly free. Now, I don't feel super vulnerable about it. And I feel like, you know, I've gotten amazing messages from people telling me like, oh my God, thank you for being real and raw and honest. And they're like, you're so brave. I'm like, am I brave or am I just stupid? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think it's empowering. I think, you know, and I think people, everyone deals with it. You know, we all have our own, you know, we have our own demons and, and a lot of people don't admit them. And it's funny because you put it in writing. It's like, uh, I don't, you probably know my, you know, Rich Scheiner, Scheiner's book about stand-up, you know, he tells these crazy cocaine stories. And, and you oh my see, God, I love him. Yeah, I love and, you, him. And, you, and you read these stories and you're like, okay, you know, we've all done bad things. Of course. But, but we're not bad people. And I think with of you, you're bringing, it, you're bringing it to the forefront. And it must be a great feeling for you that you can help people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that was one of the, my, my hopes was that if I really, really, really got into the nitty gritty that people would be like, wow, she can get sober, anyone can get sober, and that it would give people hope and that they'd feel less ashamed and less alone. And, you know, there's a lot of humor in the book, too, because I was an ex-comic, and it's like, if I didn't, the book, there's such, there's a lot of really, really heavy parts and I had to balance it out with some levity. Otherwise, people were just going to be like, oh, my God, I'm going to throw myself off a bridge. It would have just gotten too depressing. And, and, and honestly, some of the stuff I went through, you know, losing everything and the community labor and all that kind of stuff, like I had to find the humor in it or I just wasn't going to survive it. I just I was like, where how is this funny and how can I get through it? And how is this a story? No. But it was it was difficult to put myself back in that headspace of like active, active addiction because I don't recognize that person anymore. I mean, I'll have five years clean in January and being back in that really compulsive, dark place was, was difficult, you know, and the sex addiction stuff was really hard to write about. That was really embarrassing, but I just, I feel that, that that's the details, you know, the universality and the identification are in the details, ironically. And so I was just like, you know, and I, and I keep quoting Jerry Stahl all the time. He, he was such a love to blurb my book, and he's such a hero of mine. And he just said, if you had the nerve to live what you, to live what you lived, you should have the nerve to write it. And I was like, okay, here we go. Jerry Stahl's a great guy. I remember, God, a few years, five years ago, four years ago, I just tweeted him, and he ended up doing my show. I mean, that's how cool he was. Oh, Isn't my God. That's, yeah, he's the greatest. He's so down to earth and so nice. And, like, yeah, he blurred my book. He's great. Now, you grew up in Beverly Hills. Right. As a kid, what was your life like as a kid? Because I grew up in a nice area, too, and, and there was a lot more partying. I'm a little older than you, but there was a lot more partying in nicer areas. What was it like, like in high school? Were you a kid? Were you a creative kid? Were you a, you know, did you, were you a, a bratty kid? Did you no, start partying in high school? Or, or what was I was, yeah, I went to an all-girls private uniform school in Bel Air. I was a total goody-two-shoes. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I got straight A's. Like, I was really straight. 
You know, I didn't kiss anyone till I was 18. I didn't lose my virginity until I was 19. I didn't drink till I was 19. I didn't do any hard drugs till my mid-20s. So I was a really late bloomer. So my parents kind of thought, like, I had missed the addiction train. I was like, surprise! You know, and then all of a sudden, it's like mid-20s it starts. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's six rehabs later. Um, but no, I, you know, my father said to me, I, I will, you know, make a bet with you. I will bet you that you will smoke or drink or do drugs before you're 18. And if you don't, I'll give you a thousand dollars. And I was like, okay, that's how Jews raise each other. Come on. We, we brought each other. You know how it works. <laughs> so, so you sit there now, now, when did you get into this path? When did you start partying? When did it, when did it first hit you? And was it something that once you touched it, you were like, Oh my God, I, I'm addicted or how did it happen? Like what, what was your, well, there's you a lot of addiction in my family. Uh, my mom is sober, like over 40 years. There's, you know, my uncle was a speed freak. There's a lot of mental illness and addiction on both sides of my family. Um, well, I was in college and I was a sophomore and I was a virgin. I never drank and I was a freak. I wasn't cool at all. You know, I had this albatross of purity around my neck and I just thought I got to get rid of this. I got to fit in. And so I drank and I fell down and, but it's college. Everyone's throwing up and blacking out and falling down. And my drinking didn't look that different from anyone else's and drinking for me made me extremely out of control immediately. So I wasn't a huge, I, I didn't love it. So it was when I found crystal meth at 24 that I had that click that everyone talks about where I was like, Oh, this is what I've been looking for. Now, what Four. year was that? Just, I'm not trying to get your age, but I'm thinking, because Crystal Meth... I don't I mean, care about my age. Look, Crystal, I just turned 48, and I look amazing. Well, see, oh, you do look great. Today. You do look great. I just turned 54, and, and I look great. And I have no yeah. lines in my face. And I was a stand-up comic on the road for many years, so I partied. But uh, Crystal Meth, though, I guess, was that a West Coast thing? Because back east, we had, like, crap. Yeah, yeah we didn't have meth. San Francisco. Yeah, it is a West Coast thing. Because you need a lot of area, like like, like space to cook it because of the smells and stuff like that. I know that it's not big on the East Coast. So it was in San Francisco that I first tried it. And the first time I hated it, and I was like, ooh, I feel like too jittery and weird. But the second time I had that weird click and like a vortex opened up inside me, and I was like, this is the thing I need to be on the planet and feel okay for the rest of my life. So you do it. When do you feel that you're getting a problem? At what point? I mean, actually, I didn't really realize I had never been around drug addicts, and I didn't. So I'm like surrounded by drug addicts living in lower hate with gutter punks and skinheads. And I think I'm just experimenting, you know, and I, but I, you know, I'm experimenting every day, all day. And I didn't really see it coming. I didn't see it happening. It's like gaining weight. You know, you don't gain weight overnight. You don't get strung out overnight. It's like you're doing it, you're doing it. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit. Oops. I don't know if we're live or radio or whatever. And I'm, I'm trying not to swear. Oh, it's Sorry. fine. You can curse all you want. Don't worry. It's internet oh, okay. radio. Um, so I really, I was convinced for so long that I needed that as a medication to be on the planet. So I got like a huge infection in my face and that's when the sort of like my parents found out and dragged me back to LA and, you know, I was, you know, clean for a couple months and then I, I you know, walked into a antique store and, you know, drug addicts can feel each other out. We have a radar, just like sober people can, you know, feel each other out. And I walked into a antique store, and this gorgeous gay guy said to me, "How you doing, girl?" And I was like, eh, "I'm okay." He goes, "Just okay. What you need is a rail." And I was like, "Bing!" <laughs> and that broke sort of my two months, you know, clean time. And from him, I navigated the entire speed scene of Los Angeles. 
and then until I had a grand mal seizure in a market, and then I ended up in rehab about a year and a half later. So that was your first. They was first sent in rehab. Now, now what? What did it feel like when you went to rehab? Were you feeling ashamed? Were you feeling guilt? Oh, I was Were you angry. angry? I was so angry. I was so, so angry. I was in dual diagnosis for two months and sober living for four months, and I was furious. I was 24 years old, and I was kicking chairs across. the. I mean, I was so angry. And, uh, you know, I stayed clean for about a year, and then I thought, well, I can drink. And I tried drinking, and I was in a blackout for three weeks. And I thought, okay, maybe not. And then I just stayed dry for seven years, just on my own. Now, did you go to meetings? Because I, I know you, you. No, no, I was. I did not like. I did not like AA. I'm not. I don't. I, I break anonymity all the time. I think that you know when you say you're in recovery, people know you're you're in AA. They don't or twelve step. They don't think you're in recovery from cancer. So I think that you know we need to sort of like take off the shadow of that. I mean, maybe it's because I'm new and so I don't respect traditions and I'm still rebellious or whatever. But I just you know I don't understand how we can break the stigma of addiction, but not, but hide that we're in recovery. It's weird to me. Um, and, and for me, you know, a lot of people think, have a lot of preconceived notions about what 12 step program and AA is like, that it's some weird Christian cult. And I think the more information the more open we are about it, the less people will be freaked out about it. Um, so I basically stayed dry without anything for seven years. And then I moved, I, I was living in Europe. I moved back and I don't know, I was making out some loser at the standard and he blew pot smoke in my mouth and I was high for the first time in seven years and, you know, woke up the dragon. And I was like, oh my God, pot. I can smoke pot. I hate pot. Boom. Then I was like, you know, and it just progressed from there. Then I was like, I can drink. It's been seven years. And then I was like, I can do Coke. Coke's not methane. Later, I'm in my second rehab. Now, at this time, were you writing at all? Were you doing anything creative? I mean, when did, when did you? I was doing fashion. I was in fashion. I mean, I was chronicling a lot of this as I was going along. I've always been a writer since I was a young little girl, and I and I wrote in college for magazines. And my father's a writer, but I wasn't doing it professionally. So you're doing that. You go into rehab for the second time now. At, at any time, are, you, are, are your parents getting a little irritated? Because I always think, you know, it's like this. Like I have a friend who's been married three times. He's a few years older than me, and I always think, you know, when you sit there and and you know, okay, I mean, I'm divorced, so you know, I'll, I'll get married again, and then, then you get divorced. And then you're married again. And that, that third wife must be thinking, well, this guy's been divorced twice. But when you get divorced like a third time, the, the fourth wife, you're just sitting there going, what is that lady thinking? She knows he's married three times. It doesn't work. Like for you, when you went to rehab the second time, were your parents irritated at you or were they very supportive? No, my parents were supportive. They were concerned. They were really concerned. I mean, I'd had a big chunk of clean time, so they were concerned. But I relapsed three days out of that rehab. And started using cocaine intravenously, now, which I'd never done before. So it was like, you know, I, I learned all these tricks from all these, you know, uh, rehab reruns who'd been in, in you know, 25 re rehabs. And so it was like, you know, I, I then all of a sudden I'm on a whole new level of, of, do, of shooting up, which was a, a nightmare. Now, is there a lot of people like that who are who are back in and then do it habitually and then try to sit there and say, oh, well, if you, you, you can do it this way. I mean, how does that happen? Um, I mean, I relapsed and I remember looking through my big book that was signed, you know, with all my fellow rehab inmates, <laughs> clients, whatever. And I thought and I just used my deductive reasoning to think who is already loaded and who would be down a party. 
and I called up this rich kid junkie and he came over and he was like shooting speedballs and he just said, why are you snorting cocaine or smoking it? You should be shooting it. It's so much better and it's cheaper because you use less and you're a Jew. You should like that. I was like, how dare you? <laughs> and so I started, you know, I just, I had relapsed out of my second rehab at that point And I just thought, wow, I'm, I'm going to be an addict forever. Like, why not embrace it and let's just do it. So I tried it and that's like a whole other ball of wax. It's gnarly. So, really you, so you go into that, and then how long so does that... So then I started shooting cocaine for, you know, a while, and I could never do it for very long because I'd always end up in the ER. And, you know, I have epilepsy from crystal meth, and so, you know, I'd have seizures shooting cocaine a lot. So then I would shoot cocaine wearing a bike helmet. That was my thinking. Like, well, I don't want to crack my head open, but I don't want to knock it high. That's a and scene. Was, that's a scene from a great. I, I mean, it's, it made so much sense at the time, and now I'm like, that is lunacy, Amy. That's just like it just. I was like, wow, shooting coke is a high impact sport. Okay, you know, like how I protect myself, but you know, stay safe. You know, but still get high. Um, and then, God, I don't. Just a lot of relapses, and then I'd get a couple of years clean, and then relapse, and a couple of years clean, and then relapse. I mean, I think my parents, yeah, there was one period where my dad just was like, I think it was my sixth rehab, where he was just like, I'm done. I just, I don't, you know, call me when you have good news, or don't call me. Like, I'm so, you've been dra you've drained me financially and emotionally for years, I'm, I'm over it, I'm over the roller coaster, you know. My mom had more empathy for it because she had been an addict and alcoholic herself. So she got it. She understood. Now, it just it's just funny. It just goes to see what the power of addiction is. Because for me, I always thought I had an addictive personality. I used to drink all the time. And then about six years ago, I was in the hospital with congestive heart failure. And it's, it's, Yeah, I mean, I was sitting there. I, my doctor thought I walked around for a month with a heart attack. Oh, and, my God. Yeah, and I was flying back. East to see, I flew back east to see my girlfriend. You know, we went to dinner. I could barely move. We went to a base. I mean, I was mm -hmm. active. But the funny thing is, I was a cigarette smoker. And, you know, and I... As soon as I got out of the hospital, I said, I'll never smoke again just because of my heart. And, you know, I was better, not better, better, but I gave it up. And then for drinking, I used to drink all the time. I didn't drink for three months and I drink like once a week and then, you know, things like that. It just shows the thing of addiction. Like you, you were wearing a helmet to protect yourself <laughs> and you didn't give a shit. I mean, did you ever sit there and think, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that it, the addiction takes you over. But did you ever sit there and think, okay, man, this is not normal behavior. I'm an intelligent woman. I'm a talented woman. I come from a good family. This, is, this isn't what, like, a lot of people I know are doing. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, I was so deep in it at that point. And, you know, when you're so deep in it, it's almost like, a, it's almost like a possession. It's like a spirit possession. I mean, you're, men, you're really mentally ill. You're in it and you can't see clearly. But I had two seizures back to back and I thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to die doing this. And uh, I called someone from the program and I went to a meeting and I started trying to get clean again. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's lunacy. And, you know, that was what was that was what a part of getting, you know, writing the book was putting myself back in that headspace with so that you could see that, you know, without it was very painful to look at that stuff, having recovery and having the insight now. And having to put myself back in that headspace so that people could have that ride and see a transformation. You know what I mean? And see, you know, as, as the editors love it, the narrative arc. So, so you're, when, now when did you start to do stand-up? I mean, were you, were you, were you wasted when you were I doing stand-up? I was sober. No, I was sober when I started doing stand-up. I did stand-up from 
I, for five years. I stopped doing it in 2011. So I was sober the entire time I did stand-up, except at the very, very end when um, I started to to fuck around with Oxycontin because um, I had a shoulder injury and I was prescribed Oxycontin and that's what ended, that's sort of what led to me pulling a knife on my ex-husband and getting arrested well, the, felony to, the violence. The Oxy, well, it's funny because the Oxy and the opioid, opioids is such a huge thing and, and what's funny for me is, you know, I mean, we're in the entertainment business and I interview a lot of musicians I've interviewed a lot of people and I did comedy on the road for years and I never really knew anyone who did heroin and it's funny, like in New Jersey, like everybody's doing heroin, like all these young kids are doing heroin and they say it comes from doing the opiates. Do you think that, you know, when you, when you got, first of all, why did they prescribe you? I don't know, because I was in so much pain. I was in so much pain. And it's like, you know, that's a slippery slope when you're an addict, but you're in really, really severe pain. You can't just, you know, we don't deserve to be in pain because we're addicts. And I really thought I'd be okay. And I wasn't, you know, first they gave me Norco and that wasn't strong enough. And, you know, my marriage was crumbling and I sort of withdrew into that. And also, you know, I, I thought I wouldn't like it. I, I don't like opiates. I didn't. And but, you know, I like anything that makes me feel different. And it made me very aggressive. I'm not saying that that's why I did, you know, pull the knife because maybe I would have done that anyway. God, I hope not. I will never know. But um, it's like I, I don't like opiates. Now, and, um, but I like things that make me feel different. And that began the spiral and I was drinking four locos and, you know, I got arrested and the whole thing and I lost everything and ended up trying to kill myself and in the psych ward and penniless. And then, you know, I had to do community labor for, you know, 240 hours. And so it was like me and like 40 Mexican guys, you know, and they were like, all like, what you here for, Weta? I'm here for a DUI. I'm like, um, I'm, I'm here for felony domestic violence with a deadly weapon. They're like, oh, shit, you know. So it was very humbling. And in retrospect, it was exactly what needed to happen. Now, now I needed to break that princess entitlement bullshit and get humble and face the consequences of my actions. And so I am glad that it happened. Now, your husband, did you meet him? Did you guys, I think you guys met when you were both sober? Yes. We met, yes. So most of your relationship, you were both sober then? Correct. Now, was this one of your first relationships where you were sober? Um, it was my most serious relationship, to be honest with you. That, I, I wasn't really ready to be married. I'd never been in a real, a real relationship, and so I was pretty feral. So I feel badly for him. He sort of married someone who had no relationship training, who had just sort of, you know, bounced around and been with different guys in AA, and I had never really had a relationship. So my marriage was my first relationship, and I was quite mentally ill at the time, and so and very selfish, and I didn't really know what I was doing. So, how did it get to a point where you pulled a knife on him? Um, I really just the marriage had been crumbling, and we were fighting, and I was high, and I just snapped, and it just happened. I mean, it's like, you know, drugs and alcohol make me, you know, a monster, and so that's why I don't, you know, I've never done that again, and uh, I don't even use knives now. I only use chopsticks. Everyone feels safer. <laughs> I got to tell you, I, I was listening, you know, I heard part of it on uh, online today. You're the book. Oh, it's horrifying. I mean, I'm so embarrassed by that. I mean, that's just the last thing I thought I'd ever do. It's just mortifying. 
as a woman to be the perpetrator of domestic violence. I mean, domestic violence is never okay, whether you're high or not. It's mortifying. That and being an IV drug user and the sex addiction, it's all, I mean, it's just like deal breaker city. My God, like who's ever going to be with me again? It's like, yikes. Well, it's when I was listening online, the, the, some from when you did the audio book. But how was it to record audio? What was that like for you to do the audio version? Because you already wrote. I the mean, book. I was, you know, I, I, it was like five hours in a stint, and you're in sort of a glass box, and you're freezing your ass off, and you can't wear anything that makes noise. So, like, I had a parka on, and I couldn't wear the parka because if you moved, you could hear it. So you're in sort of a glass box, and someone once said, "They said it looks like an execution chamber." I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. So, and you're sitting in this uncomfortable chair for five hours. But having been a comic, you know, I was pretty good at reading. And it was also my own material. So I was, at, you know, I knew my own voice. So it was three different sessions of five hours. And then I think I, we, I, I went back for some pickups. But otherwise, you know, it was exhausting. But I'm happy I did it because people are like, they love it. I haven't heard it, but I hear it's really funny. Well, I, I mean, I, my, my, my manly voice and my bad impressions, yeah. I listened to a clip of it today. And you can mm. you can listen. Do I to sound like a man? No, I mean I know you. You know, it's just <laughs> you know, I know you. I mean, <laughs> it just you sound. You the funny thing is you sound much more somber than you do in person. And I think we do that. Like for me, when I'm on stage, people say I have a different voice, which I don't. You know, but I think it just. You, but it's it's a good read because you know. I mean, it's it's a good sound. It does. It sounds. Yeah. Well, you can't be. You know hilarious when you're talking about pulling a knife on your ex-husband or shooting coke in your neck and having a grand mal seizure it's not you know it's not stand-up it's you know it's different well the the, the passage i listened to was when when you got arrested oh. now that was that was christmas night uh christmas of 2011 yeah so what so you sit there now i think like anything you know and i remember i got a dui years ago and i i Oh, it's the I, I didn't right? think I was like I I'm got. Still I was like, afraid of cops. I'm was, still afraid of cops, and it's ruined my handcuff fetish forever. Like you know, you get arrested once and you never like. Everyone's like, "But they're furry handcuffs." So I don't care. I don't care. No. Well, what's going through your mind? I mean, when you sit there, because when I got my DUI, I was like a, court, was, a block from my shocked. house. I was, I was in shock. First of all, you know, as soon as he called the cops, I got even higher because I was like, "Oh, I freaked out," and I so I, I snorted a bunch more pills. And then I tried to get out of there and I turned the corner and there were four sheriffs and I was like, Oh, I'm going to jail. And then I just cried. I was in the car and I was hysterically crying. And I tried to talk myself out of it too. I was like, Oh, perhaps we were just jousting and like, and the cops weren't having any of it. I was hysterical. I mean, I was just, I was absolutely in shock and I was so high. And then I sort of blacked out. I mean, I don't really remember a lot of the jail stuff, but I do remember calling I had an uh, old sponsee who became a bail bondswoman, and I called her, and she was like, oh, my God, my old sponsor, Merry Christmas, so great to hear from you. How are you? I was like, I'm in jail. So she bailed me out and, uh, and then became the, you know, started the nightmare of, you know, the criminal proceedings and the divorce, tri the divorce trial and, you know, all of that stuff. It was just, uh, not trial, but just the divorce. It was, I had a nervous breakdown. I lost everything. Why was your bail so high? $50,000. I mean, it, I, knew I If you pull a knife in West Hollywood, because I pulled a weapon. I pulled a weapon. If you pull a weapon, you're, you're screwed. It sounded like a butter knife. It wasn't a butter knife. It was like a sourdough cutting knife. It was a scary knife. It had a, you know, it, it had serrated edge, but it was not, 
you know, I just grab something out of the chopping block. But, you know, West Hollywood is very, you know, hardcore about that stuff. So if there's a domestic violence incident, someone's going to jail that night. Now, and, uh, yeah, it was like, it was a high bail. It was a high bail. So, now what's... But, yeah, it's, yeah, it got dropped down to a misdemeanor. And then I, you know, I did my year of domestic violence counseling and I did my 204 hours of community labor, not community service, community labor. And, um, and then I, the charges were dismissed, but you know, it's something, you know, I'm not, I'm not proud of, I'm really ashamed of it. It's not something I thought I was ever capable of, to be honest with you. So when you, when that, when that happens and now, first of all, why'd you get labor instead of service? Is it because you're charged? Because or? my, my offense. Yeah. When I went to, to get to sign up. Yeah. Cause of my offense. Cause it was a violent offense with a weapon. So you're doing. So I was like, I thought I was going to get some like you know easy gig, you know, folding shirts at a thrift store. I was like, cool, and you know, and she was like, no, only for you this one. And she like pointed to like you know graffiti removal, and I was like, oh no, like you know, like you know, I'm hot, you know, manual labor in the hot sun, like oh my god. But um, yeah, she was like, only for you this one because of your offense. I'm like, my offense, excuse me. So it was very. The whole situation was so eye-opening, and I have so much compassion, and I just, I mean, talk about the yets. It's like everything I thought that would, that, that would never happen to me happened to me, including that. And I just, it's just so easy to do things that you don't, you know, it's like I've been in psych wards now. I've tried to kill myself. I've been in six rehabs. I've been arrested. I mean, all the things that I thought would never happen to somebody like me you know, from my background and blah, and my, with my education level and da, 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 happened to me, which to me tells, is, 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 is about the power of addiction. It's just there, it, 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 it applies to everyone. It affects everyone. It's, and, and I, that's why I wanted to write the book because it's not the other, it's not out there. It doesn't happen to those people. It happens to everyone. So you, when you got done the, the community service, is that when you said in your mind, okay, I am definitely staying sober because it's the last straw? I was already sober. I'd already gotten sober. I had been in treatment uh, six times. I got out. I had been in sober living. I did my community labor when I was in sober living. I was in sober living for two and a half years. So I was already sober when I was doing the community labor. But yeah, I, I mean, I just, I realized, wow. I'm capable of some really gnarly stuff while I, I am loaded and I really need to control my anger and work on myself and, you know. Explain explain to the people that are listening exactly what is sober living? What How does that work? Sober living is like, it's like a halfway house. You live with a bunch of other recovering addicts and it's structured and there's a um, curfew and you have to go to meetings, you have to sign in and out. So it's sort of, it's not rehab, and so there's not so you can have a job, but it's it's structured and it's a, it's like it's the the transition from rehab into real life, living on your own. The sober living I was in was really nice, and it's where I learned to really love and appreciate and connect to women because I didn't really like women before that. But when you're in sober living for two and a half years and you have five different roommates, you know. 50 feet away from you, you learn how to, you know, connect to women. 
Now, what goes through your head as you're getting sober? Are you are you looking are you looking forward or are you looking day by day or how did it work when you were in the sober living and you know when you would come back from the community service you must have just felt like crap as you said because it's hard labor. First of all, you must be not only humbled but exhausted. How I was do you, so how, exhausted? I was so so exhausted and I was dirty. I mean, you're filthy. You're sweeping. I was sweeping Hollywood Boulevard like condoms and bum shit and syringes and you know it's gnarly and it's you're exhausted i have leaves in my hair you know i take off my shoes and socks my feet were filthy um and so i would eat and i would take a shower and i'd fall i'd fall asleep immediately i couldn't do all the days in a row because it was so exhausting but it was like you know it was funny too because you know we we had uniforms so people knew that we were convicts and no one would talk to us, except for, like, drunk homeless people. They'd be like, good morning! <laughs> you know, I know it sucks, but stay out of the pen, or whatever. But, like, and then a few different people would say, oh, my God, I love your environmentalism. Like, how did I become part of that? <laughs> and I was like, just get arrested. It's really easy. <laughs> but it, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it really, I'd come home, and, you know, my, one of my roommates, it's all in the book, one of my roommates would be like, you know, oh, my God, this guy, you know, blocked me on Facebook, and my spray tan's too orange. And I'm like, oh, my God, shut up. I was sleeping poo for five, you know, for eight hours, you know? Like, I can't even move. Like, I am a working man. I eat a sandwich and a blowjob in silence. Like, shut up. And, like, it put everything in perspective. It really, really did. I'd never done manual labor. And there's something very meditative about it. Um, but it is exhausting. Especially for someone like me who thinks, 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 you know? And as a writer, it's always in their head. So you get- But I did have this, you know, I did have this moment that was, you know, I had this epiphany, really, when I was sweeping the streets. And I was just like, this can be the best thing that ever happened to me, or this can be the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I get to decide what that is. Now, I was like, this turning point here, Amy. Like, you want to feel bad for yourself? You want to be in pity? Or do you want to go, hey, this is the consequences of my actions, and there are lessons here. What are the lessons? Humility, work ethic, you know, all this other stuff. And, um, and it, was, it was a turning point in my life. Now you sat there when you went. Now when did you? As you, when it was a turning point in your life, is that when you started writing for like the fix and these different things? Because I remember. Well, some... I was writing for the fix before I got arrested. I started writing for the fix back in. Uh, I wrote the first piece for them. I think it was in 2011, but it got published in 2012. And so then I was sort of chronicling a lot of this stuff as it was going on, and that's how I sort of had the basis for the book. You know. Um, the uh, one of the former editors that I worked with was like, you have a book here. Like you have, you can use pieces and you should just put it all, because the when I was doing community labor, I was posting it all on Facebook. Like everyone else that was doing community labor was like embarrassed about it. There was like publicists and lawyers and they were like, we can be friends, but I'm pretending that I'm on vacation. You know, I'm no one knows about this. And I was flaunt, I wasn't flaunting it, but I wasn't ashamed of it because that's how I deal with my shame. I was like, Hey, another day on the chain gang. And I would like show a picture of something I found on the ground or whatever I learned that day or whatever. And it was, people loved the posts. They were like, they rooted for me. And when they were bummed when it was over, they wanted, they were just like, Oh, get arrested again. It was so awesome. (laughs) From my favorite post ever. Well, I remember the post. I remember the post and they were all, they're all brutally honest. You know, 
And also, finally, there was like an arc. I really landed. I had a transformation where I felt like I'd landed in a, and I felt different in, a, in the sobriety than I'd ever felt in, uh, in any other one. So I thought, okay, I feel comfortable writing a book now. Now, when you, when you were starting to write and when you were feeling sober, and you know now, as you said, you had an epiphany, it's now or never. This could be the crappiest thing ever, the best thing. How did you feel in your own skin? Were you getting more confident? Were you, were you sitting there and not worrying about using? What did you personally feel like in, those, in, in that very beginning? Well, I wasn't using. It was just, I mean, I was in sober living. I was out of options. My parents were both broke. I was, you know, no rehab. There was no more money. I had no health insurance. Like, there was no more options. I had to stay sober, and I was very, very clear on that. I mean, I'd done the experiment many, many times. So using was never an option. But I did start doing other things. I started cutting, and I'd never done that before. And I, you know, smoked a lot. I vaped a lot. And I also had kind of like I developed like a weird sex addiction in the early part of the sobriety. And I write about that in the book. And that's also something that I never thought would happen to me. Because I was sort of, you know, I had been married, and I was sort of prudish prior to that. And, you know, it just, and then all of a sudden I'm on Tinder and, you know, having sex with people that I don't even know in the back of my car and it became this weird compulsive thing. And then, you know, then I'm in, you know, sex and love addicts anonymous and then I'm in sex addicts anonymous. And, you know, it's just, it was very, very bizarre. It became just another way to check out. I think it's a, 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 a portion of alcoholism. You know, to me, it's all the same thing, food, all of it. It's like, how do I numb out? How do I change my feelings? I'm uncomfortable. How do I, I want to put something in my body and change my feelings. So you're you're doing going through all this, and and you said you were already writing for the fix, and you had a backbone of your book. When do you sit there and decide? I mean, was there a a moment that you were sitting there going, you know what, I got to stop screwing around about this book. I think I really need to start writing it. Um. Well, I had my friend Amber Tozer, who wrote Sober Stick Figure, who was also a comic, um, had gotten a book deal, and I just asked her. I said, hey can you pass on some of my writing, some of my fixed stuff to your agent and see what he thinks? And she did. She was kind enough to do that. And the agent loved it and was like, awesome. I love your writing. Let's get on the phone and, and talk. And I said, I have an idea for a book. And I pitched it to him and he was like, great, I love it. And within six months, you know, it was due. So how does that process start for you as a writer? Because now it's not, it's not a blog. It's not an article for the it's fix. It's really hard. It's a completely different process than editorial writing, which is like 1,800 words, and then you wrap a bow, you know? This was, for me, structuring it was the hardest thing. You know, as a, as a recovering addict, you know, the short the short sprints are, are with, with the re- quick rewards are easy. This, uh, writing a book is a marathon, and structuring it was very difficult because I had to cover 20 years of using in 280 pages. And so um, it opens with me pulling the knife on my ex-husband and then there's also, there's flashbacks. And my agent wanted my flashbacks to be chronological. So that was the hardest part, was the structure. I had to outline the whole thing. I had to give them a writing sample. And I also had to write a proposal, which I don't know if you've ever written a proposal, but it's, it's you want to blow your brains out. It's like a thesis. You know, it's like why you're writing the book, why people will buy it, compare, you know, comparative analysis, compared to five other books that are similar and why yours is different or better. Your platform, why are people, you know, why are people going to buy your book? Who are you? Do people know who you are? You know, all that kind of stuff. It was very difficult. It's, it's like, it's a sales thing. Well, because 
because your book is about you know addiction and recovery, what are five other books that you would compare it to that when people, if they read your book and they want to read something else, what would you consider some companion pieces to yours? Because I think if you're if you're have an addiction and you like you know Amy Dresner's My Fair Junkie, you might use that addiction to read some other addiction books. What are some of the books that you would compare it to? I compared it to Orange Is the New Black because it was because of the um, like sort of princess in prison stuff, you know fish out of water stuff. I compared it to um, uh, Brain on Fire, which was a girl who had some kind of brain thing and she went crazy because there was like a, 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 a mental illness component because I have two portions of the book that where I'm in the psych ward. I compared it to David Carr's Night of the Gun. Um, I compared it to Sarah Hapola's Blackout. Um you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think if you like addiction memoirs, you like addiction memoirs. Now, you're sitting there. Now, did they tell you it's going to be 280 pages or was that just... They just said 80,000, around 80,000 words. Okay. So, you know, then you write it and then, uh, you know, the editor gets a hold of it and what goes through it and, you know, she's like, wow, this is really kind of harsh and this is on PC and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you, you fight with her over different things. And, um, there's, you know, she cut big chunks. I would, I would, I would fight with her with, you know, I would like, please, I really want this in or, and I tried to accommodate her as much as possible. There's things where she's, they're very, you know, interested in narrative arc. That's the big thing. They wanted to flow. They wanted to have a narrative arc for the reader. And, um, and there was also parts where she was like, Hey, slow down, take a moment here and reflect and tell us what you were thinking. You know? Now, when you were writing it, did you have a set writing pattern? I mean, did you get up and write, or how did you... No. Oh, God, no. No, no, no. But I'm a fast writer, and like I said, I got to use portions of fixed pieces, which is great. And I had been chronicling some of this stuff for years. I've been chronicling my my drug use and mental illness for years. Because I had, you know, three half-written books on my on my computer, so there were portions where I could pull, which was great because... Then I didn't have to recreate the dialogue. I had actually written the dialogue down at the time. So when people are like, God, that dialogue, how did you remember that? It's like, because I chronicled it back then. Um, so I had a deadline, you know, and I was going to make it. This was an opportunity for me to have a published book, and I didn't want them to go, hey, we're going to give all this money to this, you know, ex-junkie. You know, I wanted them to show I was responsible and be on deadline. And I was probably one of the first writers ever to be early or on deadline, ever. So, <laughs> so you, you you get it done, you're early or on deadline, you're sitting there, and, and then you just you hand it to them, and then now what happens then? Do you do you sit there, how long do they tell you this is going to be published, and what's going through then your mind? Then it goes to the editor, so you send it in, then the editor goes through it, then you have to make the changes uh, that the editor wants to make. Then it goes to copyright, and it gets through legal vetting. I mean, it's quite a long process. I mean, at the you know the end of the book that I've written, I'm three years sober. By the time it got published, I was four and a half years sober. So what's going through your mind? Are you just sitting there going, I just want to get this book out? Or do you sit there and say, should I start a new one? Or what, what goes through your head when you're waiting? Well, right now I'm still, it's only been out for two, it, it came out September 12th. So I'm still in the promotional stages of it. You know, I'm still very much in the promotional stages of it. And... There's a weird sort of postpartum that happens when this is, you know, your life is your book and you're writing this book and then you're done and you just don't kind of know what to do with yourself. You're just kind of like, you're exhausted, but you're sort of like, 
you know, I think it's Truman Capote who said, you know, finishing a novel is like taking your child out in the backyard and shooting it in the head, you know, and killing it. It's like there's a weird sort of, you're relieved, but you're also depressed because all of your energy has been going into this creative endeavor and now it's done and you're kind of like, now what? You know, it's like anyone who tells you it's like done a show or will tell you the same thing or a movie, there's a weird sort of depression after. You're like going, 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 and then you're, so um, now I'm just doing promotional stuff. I still write for The Fix. Recently started writing for Tonic, the health arm of Vice. Um, you know, I, 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 I have a part-time editing job for um, an evolutionary psychology-based uh, relationship columnist. Um, I'm in negotiations for a series. So it's exciting. It's exciting stuff. Now, when, when you finished it, what was your first... Uh... I- Promo gig. What was the first thing you did? Like, did they sit there? Did, they, did you go to Book Soup? Did you go to the Book Soup? Yeah, I had a reading at Book Soup, and that was great. It was amazing. It was. They said it was. It was super packed, and uh, it was. It was just. It was wonderful. It was. You know. It was all my friends. I felt very supported. It was. The, it, I guess it was the most people they'd ever had there, and they said it was one of the most lively readings because, again, you know, having been a comic, I'm not going to just be there and like read it. I'm going to act it out. So I would do all the voices and walk around and do the whole, it was a half performance, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, that was the first thing is, and so I'm going to the Miami book fair this weekend. I'll be on a memoir panel with Janet Perone, who, uh, wrote a memoir about being a prostitute in the seventies in New York. So that's what's happening this weekend. I'll be there Sunday, the Miami book fair, a memoir panel. Um, yeah, but just doing a lot of radio, a lot of podcasts, a lot of blog interviews, a lot of magazine interviews, all that kind of stuff. I did Lit Quake in San Francisco where they hated me. It was great. Why they hate? Why they hate you? <laughs> because they're very un- they're very PC, and my book is very un PC. You know, and it was a lot of writers who were very <sighs> established, with you know teachers at teachers at, at, at universities and had won fellowships and had written for the New York Times and then I'm the junkie comic who gets up there and, you know, you know, does voices and, you know, it was just, oh, what's I don't your, think they... What's your whole take on the PC? Because you're a comic, your book's not PC, you're not PC, you've, and the thing is, you, but you've overcome not being PC or whatever it is. What's your take on the PC now? Because I talked to a lot of comics about it. And, you know, I mean, I did a show the other night. I don't perform a lot, but I did a show. And you have to, East Coast crowds are a little cooler. But you have to worry sometimes what you say, even when it's not even offensive at all. What is your... Well, I agree. I said handicapped, and the whole room flipped out. You're not supposed to say handicapped anymore? What are you supposed to say? I don't know. Physically challenged, maybe? But that's just... I I get... I mean... That's that's too wordy. Again, you know, in the context of the reading was me being this sort of entitled, spoiled brat and I show up for a job that I think is for a video director assistant, and it's for a guy, a paraplegic. And so it was also, I used those words to show my prejudice at the time. I was like, oh my God, I, I, you know, I've never worked for a handicapped person. Hell, I don't even know one. You know, so it's like, if you don't, you know, some people are like, oh, she comes off as kind of an asshole. Well, first of all, I was an asshole. And if you weren't an asshole when you're mentally ill and using, then I don't know why you got sober. And if I don't show who I really was, then there's no transformation. Um, but they flipped out. I said handicapped, and they absolutely flipped out. Um, I think that my editor, there were times where she was like, harsh, and like, you say a lot of this, and da-da-da. 
And I was like, I'm not PC. The book's not PC. I'm not interested in that. If it offends people, at least let me, you know, creatively offend people. I think that it words have become too sensitive. And I think it really what you know, what pissed me off about the San Francisco thing, whereas everyone freaked out that I said handicapped. It's like, have you ever bathed a quadriplegic man and taken care of him for eight months and put a glove finger up his ass to help him move his bowels? No. And dressed him and, and fed him? No. Then shut the fuck up. Like it's. It's about, it's about context. It's about how you treat people. The word is just a word. As a writer, it's just a word. That's very true. Now, you know, now I think people have gotten way out of control with it, really. You can't say anything now. And, like, there's these safe spaces and colleges, and it's just ridiculous. It's just it's ridiculous. Well, it's funny because I went to my college uh, for, like, university weekend a few weeks ago, and it was down near the Jersey Shore. And my college, when I went there was started by hippies on the boardwalk. So it was in the middle of the Pine Barrens. And you basically, we would just put a keg in the middle of the court and just drink. And it was just funny to see, you know, some of the postings in the school. And I'm like, you know what? It's like all of us partied our asses off, but we all turned out fine. And and that's the thing. It's something now, it's like you can't do anything. And I think it's, I think it's going to hurt creativity in the long run. Oh, I totally agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. I think it makes people afraid, you know? And it's like... And it takes the humor out. I mean, we are different. Why Why is, you know, I, there was even something with my editor and I said, you know, I was living in Inglewood in part of the book. I moved to Inglewood for two months. So I'm like a skinny white Jew living in Inglewood. And it was like very eye-opening. Right. <laughs> it's like I've never been the minority. And, you know, um, and I said, you know, black. And, and she was just like, well, you say black. And I'm like, it was a primarily black neighbor. Why, why saying the thing that it exists is that African-American neighborhood? Like, I don't get it. I wasn't saying it as a bad thing. And it was actually, you know, I, I, I was totally safe there. It was really fun. You know, all of that kind of stuff. But I don't understand why now acknowledging differences is on PC. I think it marginalizes people more and makes them more in a special zone. And it's like, you know, very precious and delicate. I, I, I think it's a mistake. I really do. And I think it absolutely hurts creativity and no one feels like they can laugh at anything. And it's like, you know, it's like, you know, there was that magazine called Heeb, you know, that the Jews started. It's like, I just, I, I just, I think I, 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 you know, I don't abide by that. I treat people. I'm a very loving person. I treat people with a lot of love and respect. That matters to me more than using specific PC language. That's true. Now, I got to ask you, the people, the reviews, and what people are saying to you, and the nice messages, what does that mean to you? And does it sit there and, and make you sit there and say, you know what? Yeah, I screwed up. I did my, but I'm now I'm helping people. Is that a little bit of, bring you a little cathartic oh for you? Oh my God, totally. I was, first of all, I was shocked by all of the, I got great reviews from Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and APA, and I was shocked that they loved it. They loved it. And I got a review in Elle where they, in Elle magazine, a September issue, the big issue, and she, she compared me to Carrie Fisher's Postcards from the Edge and called the book One for the Ages. I was shocked. I was like, who paid her off? You know? I mean, I had no idea. The messages I get, yeah, it's like, I've had people who are uh, not addicts and have had family that were addicts and they were like wow i understand addiction so much better now thank you it's like having a conversation with my family that i could never have and i, I understand thank you 
But most of the, the, the stuff is people going, thank you for giving me hope. Thank you for keeping it real. Thank you for letting me feel less ashamed and letting me laugh at things that I was just mortified by and, you know, letting me feel less alone. And so, you know, my dad said something that was so, I mean, I cry when I get these messages. It's the best part of the whole thing. To think that I turned 20 years of just awfulness into something that is helping people. It's like, that's what it's about. You know, my father said, I'm not ashamed or angry or sad about what you went through because now I understand it all. You did it all. You went through all that so you could write this book so you could help people. And there's no higher calling than that. He said, I couldn't be more proud of you. Now, how do people get in touch with you? Do they, do they email you? Like if someone wants to send you a nice passage and say, you know what, you really helped me out. How would, how would someone get in touch with you? I'm on Instagram as Amy Dresner. I'm on Twitter. I have a website, amydresner.com, where you can write to me. Your website's very nice, actually. It's very. I checked it out. It's very. It's very Thank put together. You. Now, so what's in the future for you, Amy? I mean, you're going to do some book tours. Are you thinking of maybe trying to get on a lecture tour or something like that? Because you really have a good I story. I would love to speak. Yeah, I would love to speak to kids. Kids, you know, really can hear me because I'm real and I swear. <laughs> I'm still really immature, I guess. But um, and I've really been through it, so they have respect for that. Um, yeah, I'd love to do a TED talk. I'd love to speak at colleges or high schools. Um, as I said, we're negotiations for a series based on the book. Now, now, how are you, uh, how is it, is it harder to stay sober? Is it still, I mean, is it because of all this has happened? Does it give you more of a focus to stay sober? Because now you are, you know, I mean, it's a weird term to say, but you sort of are a poster child for sobriety because you've done good. You know, and I'm, I'm proud of you. Well, yeah, and like, I think okay, a lot so, of people are proud of you. So, you know, now you have to sit there. You know, there's pressure, but I think it's, it's a good pressure probably. Well, yeah, it's like, you know, the happy ending of my book was, you know, I was in this relationship and madly in love. And he, you know, we broke up in April or March, April of this year and he moved out. And I literally fell apart. I mean, I lost so much weight that people thought I was ill. And, you know, uh, my period went away. I, you know, it was, it was like, sayonara, bitch, enjoy your mustache. Like, it was bad. Like, I was so, so skinny. And, um, the, my, of course, and I wrote a piece about it for The Fix called My First Sober Heartbreak. And it was like, my first thought was, like, I want to kill myself, you know. And my second thought was, you know, I, 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 I got to use. And then I thought, you know, I can't. I've got a recovery memoir coming out. You know, it's like, what are people going to be like, well, our author can't be here, but she's Skyping in from her eighth rehab. Amy, are you there? You know, I just couldn't let down all my publishers and my agents and my parents. And I just, I just, I wasn't willing to burn my, my life to the ground again. I just knew it wasn't the answer. And so I did what normal people do. I felt my feelings, you know, and... You know, all all of them, and I cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and got through it and didn't pick up. That's awesome. See that? So you're kicking ass, and I want to thank you for coming on. People, go get my fair junkie, a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean by Amy. She's she's a class act. You know, I've known her for. As I said, she was the first Kupital guest, which is so <laughs> weird because I was crapping myself. I had never been on radio. I had never interviewed anybody. It was so funny. And I was sitting there going, "What am I going to do?" And then we had the comedy show. And I'm glad we got to take this time. And uh, so, yeah, get the book, people. Seriously. And if, if you know someone who's going through addiction, reach out to her. You know, I mean, that's what, you know, she's she's helping. And that's I write back to everyone at least once, always. Cool. Well, so people go follow her. I feel connected because the book is very, very open and vulnerable and intimate. So I, 
you know. And people freak out when I write back. They're just like, oh, oh my God, I'm fangirling out right now. You wrote back to me. He's like, I'm just a junkie who wrote a book. <laughs> how's, you know? how's, it, how's it selling? I think it's selling well. Good. I don't really ask. I just kind of focus on my part, you know? Well, good. Well, Amy, I want to thank you for coming on. So people follow her. It's at Amy Dresner on Twitter, right? Yeah. At Amy Dresner. People follow and me. You can on... buy the book on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble, IndieBound. So buy the book. People follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have, God, 658 episodes on there. You can email me, cooper, wow. coopertalk.net. Also, it's the holidays are coming up, so you can get my book. I remember when I had the heart problem. I got out. I wrote a low-sodium cookbook. It's 120 easy recipes. There's no long list of ingredients because people get intimidated. There's no pictures because guys get intimidated. You can buy it. Go to stopthesalt.com. You can buy it at amazon.com. But if you buy it at stopthesalt.com, I'll sign it and I make more money. So people, please follow Amy. Go go buy her book, My Fair Junkie, a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean. Go to amydresner.com. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and you guys have a great week. <laughs>